Welcome to the Tommy Lanham Podcast, where you will discover how to embrace your weird, organize your dreams, and ignite your enthusiasm. And now, here's Tommy. Ready? Here we go. A little less than a year after my wife and I were married, we were married in 2000, and that was intentional by me because that way I always know exactly how many years we've been married. And so we got married in 2000, and in the spring of 2001, we thought we were ready to buy a house. We weren't, but we thought we were. And so we started looking for a house, and and my wife typed in what we were looking for, what we can afford, and and the geographical area that we wanted to be. We lived in Lexington at the the time. We found out real quick we were not going to be able to afford anything in Lexington, Kentucky, because everything there is expensive. So we started looking at the surrounding counties, and in one of the surrounding counties, a little town called Nicholasville, we found this house online, and we both liked what we saw online so we said let's drive out to it so we drove out to it and and we looked at it and we both fell in love with this house and my wife and I we have a lot of differences that we've had to work through over the past 18 years but one of them is not what we like in a house we have very very similar taste in what we like in a house and so we both just kind of fell in love with this house and we went through the whole process we signed a hundred and 20,000 pages of information. It felt like we were signing our life away. But we, we signed all that stuff and we bought this house and it was, it was May when we moved in. It was a Saturday in May of 2001. I had a speaking engagement on that next Sunday. I was speaking at a church. It was about two hours away. She was going to stay home and unpack. I was going to be gone. Now, my only requirement when we were looking for a house is that it had to have two bathrooms. Because we spent almost the first year of our marriage in an apartment with one bathroom. And I found out real quick that did not go over well. Although we have very similar ideas in houses, we do not have very similar ideas on the use of bathrooms. <laughs> and so my one requirement is that we had to have two bathrooms. And this house had an upstairs bathroom and a downstairs bathroom. Now this was a fixer-upper type of house. It was a unique house. It looked like a barn from the outside. It was vertical, rough-cut lumber on the outside. And the majority of the inside was also vertical rough cut lumber but we loved it we felt like we were getting little house on the prairie or something like that (laughs) and so we moved into this house like I said it had a bathroom upstairs had a bathroom downstairs the bathroom upstairs had a shower the bathroom downstairs had a bathtub now I don't know about you I'm a shower guy I'm not a bathtub guy I like for the water to beat the dirt off of me. I don't like sitting in a pool of water with the dirt floating around me. (laughs) But like I said, this was a fixer-upper house, and the shower was not yet working. 
So I got up early on Sunday morning and I was already frustrated because I had to take a bath instead of the shower. And I went in there and I was getting ready to, to take my bath and I noticed there was no drain stopper for this tub. And I'm looking around thinking, what can I use to put in this drain to stop the water from flowing out? And I've already started the water at this point, and I'm trying differently. I tried a, a rag. There was this piece of rubber that was laying in the floor when we bought the house. I tried putting that on there, but it wasn't quite big enough. And in my frustration, this shows you how frustrated I was, I thought maybe if I get a cup and put it on there, well, it just floats to the top, right? It just, it was, I wasn't thinking. And finally, through a combination of about four or five different things, I finally got it slowed down. Didn't stop, but it had slowed down. And by this time, all of my hot water had run out. So here I am, frustrated, in a cold bath with dirt floating around me, trying to hurry up and take this bath before the water runs out. And while I'm doing this, I happen to look at the front of the tub, and there's this chrome lever. <laughs> now some of you are listening faster than I'm talking. <laughs> I reached up and I pulled up that chrome lever, and lo and behold, the water stopped running down the drain. Now, let me just say at this point, it takes a pretty secure person to be able to share a story like that with a crowd. <laughs> but sometimes we just do silly stuff, don't we? And we, we're embarrassed by it, or, and we know people that know about it are going to laugh about it. It's those types of failures. It's not a major catastrophe, but it's a failure. Now, a few years later, we had our first child. She's 14 now, but at the time, she was a little bitty girl. She was talking, but she was still uh, in a playpen. When we go down to Grandma's, we put her in a playpen to take her nap and stuff. She had this doll down there that she liked to have with her in that playpen. <laughs> and she was sleeping, and all of a sudden, we hear this blood-chilling scream. And we thought, what is going on? And we ran back there to the bedroom, and we opened the door, and she is standing there with this doll, with the head of the doll in one hand and the body of the doll in the other. And Tammy goes, what's wrong? What's wrong? And she goes, I broke the baby. I broke the baby. <laughs> Listen. Sometimes we make mistakes when it's just kind of silly stuff and we understand that it's silly stuff, it might embarrass us. Other times we make mistakes and whether it's reality or not, we feel like we broke the baby. We feel like we've made a major catastrophe type of mistake. I told you last night something that we all have in common is failure. Sometimes those failures are just embarrassments. We, we look around to see if anybody noticed. You know, we're kind of ashamed of it. It's not a major catastrophe. If nobody knows about it, you kind of get through. But then we have other failures that sometimes in reality, but even if they're not in reality, we take them as if they are a major catastrophe. And man, those types of failures could sometimes 
destroy us if we let it. What I want to talk about here tonight is how to use failure in a positive way. Whether it's the little embarrassments or whether it's breaking the baby. How can we learn to fail forward? How can we become better because of our failure rather than bitter because of our failure? Many of you are probably familiar with Max Lucado. If you read a lot of Christian uh, literature, Max Lucado is one of the more prolific Christian authors that are out there. When Max Lucado wrote his first book, he went to 17 different publishers before he finally found somebody that would publish his book. And when he finally found somebody who would publish it, they said, okay, we will do you a favor. We will publish this book as long as you do not come to us for a second book. I bet they'd like to have a second book by Max Licato today. And somebody was interviewing Max Licato one time and they asked him, they said, as you were going to publisher after publisher and every one of them were turning you down, what was going through your head? And Max Licato said this. He said, the only thing that was going through my head was, I need to go to another publisher. I need to go to another publisher. <laughs> and somebody said this about Max Licato. Max Licato had this gift. And this is a gift. He had the ability to fail and not realize that he failed. He had the ability to not make it and not realize that he didn't make it. And since he didn't realize that he didn't make it, what did he do? He kept moving forward. He kept going. And like I said earlier, now he's one of the more prolific authors in the, in the Christian world. He's got, I don't know how many books he's got out there. And they all sell very well. Another author that you may have heard of is an author, he's, he's passed away several years ago, but an author by the name of Norman Vincent Peale. He wrote a book, you may have heard of it. It's called The Power of Positive Thinking. When Norman Vincent Peale wrote this book, he had gone to 15 different publishers and finally came home, took the manuscript, and threw it in the trash. And he says, I quit. And his wife was like, what's going on? What's happening? Pretty negative attitude for a guy that just wrote The Power of Positive Thinking, right? And his wife was talking to him and she knew how much time and effort and blood, sweat and tears he had poured into this manuscript. And she didn't want him to give up. And she walked over and was about to pull that out of the trash and he said, no! I forbid you to pull that out of the trash. And then he stormed out of the room. Well, his wife, giving in to his wishes, did not pull that manuscript out of the trash. Instead, she picked up the trash and she took it to another publisher. The publisher pulled it out of the trash, read it, liked it. Five million copies later, it's a bestseller. Still sells a lot of copies today. How can we learn from our failure? 
I remember on the day I graduated high school, I was up before everybody else in my family. I had some family that had come in from out of town. They were coming to my graduation, but they were all still asleep except for my dad. And, and my dad and I were sitting there talking and just kind of chit-chat, and all of a sudden he looked at me and he said, boy, now I don't know about you, but my dad meant business when he said boy. With my mom, it's like my full name, Thomas Lee Lanham. But my dad looked at me and he said, boy, I never thought I would live to see this day. Well, that's some encouraging words. <laughs> but he had reason to feel that way. Guess what? I was never a good student. Matter of fact, at times I wasn't even a good kid. <laughs> it was an urban area. We had a fenced-in yard. My parents would let me go out in the yard and play. And one day I had learned a new trick. It was how to unlock the gate. And my mom happened to look out in the window to see where I was in the yard. She couldn't see me. She came out in the yard to see where I was in the yard. She couldn't find me. And all of a sudden, she saw the gate. And it was open. And she ran outside the gate and kind of went down the road a little this way and the road a little that way. She didn't see me. She immediately went back in the house and called the police to let them know what had happened. And the police says, ma'am, I think we know where your son is. <laughs> I had gone several blocks away from our house across a set of railroad tracks and was sitting in a bar talking with a couple of ladies on each side of me. <laughs> I was not a good kid. When I was about four or five years old, I set our house on fire. I was not a good kid. The weird thing is, I don't, let, I don't remember anything else when I was that age, but I remember setting this house on fire. Okay? I took one of my sister's Barbie dolls, and there were several people over our house that night. They were playing cards. Some of them were smoking, so there was smoke already kind of in the house. Us kids were kind of sitting in the living room watching television, except for me. I got my sister's Barbie doll, and I found a lighter, and I went into my mom and dad's bedroom, and I set the hair of that Barbie doll on fire, and I put it on my mom and dad's bed, and then I walked back into the living room and sat down and watched TV. That whole room was in flames before anybody knew it. Now, here's the unique thing about that, and I think I may have shared a little bit about this the other day. When that house caught fire, it was unlivable for a long, long time. There's people that live in it now, and from what I understand, a few years ago my sisters went to visit that home because that's where they grew up, and the people that live there knew my story. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> they were like, yeah, our brother set this house on fire, and they're like, oh, we've heard that story. A Barbie doll on your mom and dad's bed, right? They're like, yes. But because of that fire, we moved from northern Kentucky back, back down to southeastern Kentucky where both of my parents had grown up. And from there, my mom took me and my sister to church with her. We didn't go to church a whole lot when we were up in northern Kentucky. I think I shared with you the other day, we were Christers for the most part. We went on Christmas and Easter. 
But other than that, we didn't go a whole lot. But we went on a consistent basis when we moved back down. At least my mom and my sister and myself did. And it was there that I began to consistently hear the gospel. <laughs> it was there that Jack Bunch took me by the shoulders and stood me right beside him to shake everybody else's hand as they went out the door. But even when we moved down there, I was still not a good kid, especially academically. I always saw myself as an average student at best. I felt like I had to study twice as hard to make half the grade. And you know what? As long as I had that mindset about myself, that was true about myself. I always struggled academically. I always enjoyed going to school. I was never the kind of kid that would skip school. Matter of fact, I enjoyed the sixth grade so much, took it twice. <laughs> and all the way through grade school and even into high school, I struggled. And people were kind of surprised that I had a desire to go to Bible college and punish myself some more. <laughs> and even when I went to college, I did not perform well. I struggled in Bible college. I'm one of those people that squeezed a four-year degree into six. <laughs> I struggled. As a matter of fact, technically, I was kicked out of Bible college at one point because of my grades. And it was only because of the encouragement of my mom to go to Johnson Bible College and plead my case <laughs> that I would do better, that I would get those grades up, that I was allowed back in. By the grace of God in Johnson Bible College, I was allowed to go back to school. And I did get my grades up. And by this point, I had met a wonderful, fantastic woman who would later become my wife. And she was one of these students that was in the half of the class that made my half possible. You know what I mean? She was in the top half, I'm in the bottom half. <laughs> and so she worked with me and helped me through that process. And, and we studied together. We had some classes together. We would study together. And although I didn't excel academically, I did get my grades up well enough that they allowed me to stay and to finish out, even though it took me six years. <laughs> now, I used to be embarrassed about that until I found out that Soren Kierkegaard if you've ever studied philosophy much, you've probably heard that name. Soren Kierkegaard is considered one of the greatest thinkers of the past 200 years. Took him 10 years to get his undergrad degree. So I guess I'm in good company if it, it took him that long. From there, I went into ministry. And man, I was on fire in ministry. Went into a church that had been split right down the middle for the past 20 years. And the split was not only in the church, it was in the main family in the church. There had been a split in that church from 20 years before I had gotten there over a divorce and a child custody battle that had taken place. Brother against brother, brother against mom. Matter of fact, the wife of one of those brothers came into my office one day and she said that her husband had it in writing with a lawyer that if he died before his mom did, that his mom was not allowed to attend his funeral. Now that's what this brand new kid just out of Bible college, ready to change the world, was plunged into. I was clueless. 
I was clueless. But it did help prepare me for ministry. I, I often tell people, I got my degree at Johnson Bible College. I got my education at that first church after I graduated. <laughs> That's where I learned about ministry and how the dynamics of ministry and, and church leadership and church structure and all that fares out. That's where I learned all that stuff. A few years later, in 2000, I started a ministry, same year I got married, I started a ministry called Upside Down Ministries. Matter of fact, the last time I was here, it was as a part, or no, it wasn't the last time I was here, was it? Because we closed that in 08, we were here in 2010. But I did come here as a part of Upside Down Ministries before that, I, I'm pretty sure, and worked a lot of weeks at Southern Illinois Christian Service Camp with Upside Down Ministries. Did that for eight years before I went back into local church ministry. <laughs> Did that for about seven years before I got back into doing what I'm doing now. Traveling around to different churches and organizations and speaking and doing coaching and doing trainings. Now here's the weird thing. Even though I struggled academically... Something happened to me after I graduated college. Even when I graduated college, I graduated with a grandiose GPA of 2.3. <laughs> Not very impressive. But after I graduated college, I began to read some books and listen to some people that, that were feeding me information that I had never really paid attention to before. I listened to a tape by Zig Ziglar. Yeah, I listened to tapes back then. I still listen to tapes from time to time. But I got a tape by Zig Ziglar found in the bookstore in Corbin, Kentucky. It was called How to Be a Winner. I didn't know who Zig Ziglar was. I had heard John Maxwell quote Zig Ziglar a few times, and I, I read some John Maxwell books. And so I thought, oh, if John Maxwell thinks a lot of Zig Ziglar, he's probably got some good stuff. So I bought this tape, and it's called How to Be a Winner. And I started listening to this guy talk about how you, we were born to win. But before you can legitimately expect to win, you got to plan to win, and you got to prepare to win. And I would hear him say stuff like, like, never trade what you want most for what you want now. And, and I begin to hear him say all this stuff, and, and then I begin to listen to people that he quoted. And, let us, and I begin to listen to all this stuff, and I begin to read these books. I got a book that was called Untapped Potential by Jack Lanham. Not related to me because he spells his name funny. But it's pronounced the same way. And, and I read this book. It's called Untouched Potential. And, and, and many of these guys that I listened to came from a biblical perspective. But it was different than some of the stuff that I had heard previous. And it began to help me change the outlook I had about myself. To be honest with you, I began to change the way I saw myself. And began to look at myself more the way that I felt God looks at me. As a creation of him to serve a purpose that he has put me on this earth to serve. Now, after much of that transition and much of that transformation that took place, 
In 2015, I decided to go back to school. <laughs> Crazy, right? I mean, this was a guy that barely got through college. But I had a different mindset by this point. I enrolled at Liberty University in Lynchburg, Virginia in their online program <laughs> and was doing a master's program in life coaching and pastoral counseling. And it was a three-year program and I finished it in a year and a half and I graduated with a 4.0. Not bad for a sixth grade flunky. What changed? I had learned to fail forward. I had a different mindset about what it meant whenever I messed up, whenever I failed, whenever I fell flat on my face. And I began to look at everything from a different perspective. You know, I believe we have two people in the Bible that both failed big time, but the way they looked at that failure was very, very different. And those two people are Judas and Peter. Now, we're not going to read all the way through their stories, but I would encourage you sometime this evening or at least sometime tomorrow, find an opportunity to go to Matthew chapter 26, starting with verse 47, and read through to Matthew chapter 27, verse 10. You get both of their stories in that passage of Scripture. Judas and Peter both failed big time. Judas failed... By giving Jesus over to the authorities who eventually killed him. He betrayed Jesus. Jesus, who had poured his, his love and his service and his ministry and his life into Judas and the other apostles for approximately three years. And Judas turned his back on all of that. And he betrayed Jesus into the hands of the ones who would eventually kill him. And what did Judas do with that failure? Because of the guilt, because of the pain, because of the emotional agony, he went away and he hanged himself. He ended his own life. Now in the same passage of Scripture, we read about Peter. <laughs> Peter who said, I will never deny you, Jesus, even if I have to die. I will not deny you. And before the rooster crowed, what did he do? He denied even knowing Jesus. Not once. Not twice. But three times. We read in that story where Peter is kind of following at a distance. He doesn't want to get involved, but he wants to see what happens. And somebody comes up to him and they go, I recognize you. You were with Jesus. Not me. I, I don't, who is this guy? I don't know what you're talking about. And he went over to another area. Later on, somebody else came up to him and said, I recognize you. You were with Jesus. And Peter goes, I don't know the man. I don't know what you're talking about. It's not me. And he walks away. And again, somebody comes up to him and goes, I recognize you because of your accent. Don't you hate that? Don't you hate it when somebody knows exactly where you're from because of your accent? 
I mean, I can be on vacation or something. I can be several states away, and we'll be making an order or something. Somebody look at me and goes, you're from Kentucky, aren't you? And I'm like, how'd you know that? That's what they did with Peter. They recognized his Galilean accent. <laughs> you were with Jesus. And at this point, Peter began to curse and say, I wasn't with him. I don't know the man. And then immediately, he heard the rooster crow. And he remembered the words of Jesus when he said, before the rooster crows, you will have denied me three times. But now here's the cool thing with Peter, though. If you skip over to the book of Acts, chapter 2, verses 14 through 41, you'll see where Peter preached the first gospel message at the birth of the church. And as a result of that gospel message, about 3,000 people came to Jesus. What was the difference between Judas and his failure and Peter and his failure? Judas betrayed Jesus. He failed big time. Peter denied Jesus. He failed big time. This wasn't just, oh, I'm embarrassed type of failure. This was break the baby type of failure for both of them. And yet, one of them, it led to suicide, and the other one, it led to him leading 3,000 people to Jesus. What was the difference? One learned to fail forward, in the words of John Maxwell, and the other one didn't. And every time we fail, we have the opportunity to make the same choice. Are we going to be like Judas? Are we going to allow failure to lead us in a bad direction or maybe even a deadly direction? Are we going to be like Peter and allow failure to lead us in a direction that makes us more effective, that makes us more valuable, that makes us better prepared to do the work that God has set us out to do? Because we can do either. We're not going to avoid the failure. Neither Judas nor Peter, and we could go into several others, that did not avoid the failure. We are all going to fail. We could, we, could, we could spend five hours going around just talking about all our failures here tonight. We're not going to. Don't get nervous. But we could. So it's not a matter of whether we're going to fail or not. It's a matter of what we do with the failure. And I believe that through God's grace and our own guts, we can learn to fail forward. First of all, with God's grace. With God's grace, three things we need to understand. First of all, it's what Jesus thinks of us. And Jesus thinks you're awesome. Jesus loves you so much that he'd rather die than live without you because that's exactly what he did. He went to the cross... Not to prove that he could, not to, you know, be this spectacle or whatever. You know, the only thing that held Jesus on that cross, it wasn't the power of the Roman authorities, it wasn't the power of those nails. It was the power of his love for you and I. That was the only thing strong enough to hold him on that cross. Jesus is crazy about you. Mother Teresa used to say that she saw her failure as the kiss of Jesus. And as she went on to explain herself, she says, it's in my failure 
that I feel the gentle embrace of Jesus and it's in that moment that he kisses me. Isn't that a great picture? Because oftentimes we get this idea that when we fail, that God's going to turn his back on us, that God's going to zap us with a lightning bolt. <laughs> Listen, God's crazy about us. Does he get angry with us sometimes? Yes, he does. And we read about that in the scripture. But let me let you in on a little secret. For those of you that have kids, have you ever gotten angry with any of your children? Look, some of you are nodding, the others are like, well, they're sitting right beside me. I'm not going to answer that question. <laughs> yeah, of course we have. Do we get angry at them because we don't love them? No. Matter of fact, we may get angry because we do love them. If my son is running out in a busy street, I don't sit back and go, you know, son, it's probably not good that you do that. It may be safer if you come back. What do I do? Get out of the road! I scream, I holler, I get angry, I do whatever it takes to get him out of the road. Why? Because I love him. Because I'm crazy about that kid. Same way with my daughter. And sometimes God is that way. Sometimes God will get angry with us. Not because He's just sitting up there waiting to get angry at us. Not because He's sitting up there just waiting for us to mess up so He can pounce on us. But He sometimes gets angry with us because we make dumb decisions and He loves us. He's crazy about us. So when you fail, realize more than, than God wanting to pounce on you because you failed, you know what God is really wanting to do the most? He's wanting to pick you up and dust you off and help you continue on the path that He set out for you. Not this other path that we sometimes get off track onto. He's crazy about you. So realize what Jesus thinks of you. Secondly, realize that God's grace can work through our weaknesses sometimes more than He can through our strengths. Now, He uses our strengths, our abilities, our talents. We talked about the musical talent that you all have in this church. God uses that, right? I mean, it's a blessing. But sometimes He uses our weaknesses even more than He does our strengths. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, we read where, where Paul is, is dealing with this. And he says that he prayed for God to remove this, this thorn in his flesh that Satan had put there. And this was God's response to him. Listen to this. My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made strong in your weakness. Wow. You know, it's one thing to, to understand that God works through our strengths. But the only thing to explain that God would work in us and through us in our weaknesses is grace. It's grace. It's the only word that could adequately explain how that works. So in our failure, don't let it get you down. I'm not saying ignore it, but learn from it. 
Allow God to pick you up, dust you off, and continue on that path. And then thirdly, in God's grace, and we talked a little bit about this last night, have a group of people that love you, around you, that you could be open and honest with, that you could share your deepest, darkest secrets with. And listen, women, you need women that you can be that honest with. And men, you need men that you could be that honest with. Because when we mix that up, sometimes Satan will take pure motives and he'll twist it into something ugly. And we didn't have any of those intentions in the beginning. So we want to make it as pure as possible. Men with men, women with women. But we need those people that we can pray with, that love us, that we can be open and honest with. Several years ago, back in the 90s, they did a study of pornography sales in big cities. And one of the things that they discovered, and this is heartbreaking, one of the things they discovered is that when there was a large Christian men's conference in that city, that sometimes pornography sales went up as much as 300%. Now listen, I'm not saying that to put anybody on a guilt trip. We've all got our struggles. And men, let's be honest, the majority of us, lust is our biggest struggle. It's been mine. It's about time we need to be open and honest in the church. Because if there's something in your life that you can't talk to somebody about, I'm not saying you got to get up in front of the whole church and announce things, but you need somebody that you can talk to about your struggles. Whatever they may be. Again, God's not up there wanting to for you to mess up so that he can be mad at you. What he's wanting you to do is to do whatever you can to pull through that because he knows the damage that sin does to our heart. He knows the damage that sin does to our relationships. He knows the damage that sin can do to our marriage and to our children and to our churches. He knows the damage that sin can do. That's why he sent his son to die on the cross so that we could give all that sin to him but we need other people in our lives. God didn't just create the church so that we would have some place to go on Sunday mornings. He created the church because we need each other. We need each other to walk this Christian journey. And we need people that we could be 100% open and honest with about our struggles. Because God's grace can permeate throughout that. We need that in our lives. That's God's grace. Now what about our own guts? What do, what do we do personally in order to learn how to fail forward? Well, first and foremost, we need to change our attitude. Oftentimes, we just have, we naturally have negative attitudes, don't we? I mean, we just kind of talk in a negative way anyways. I mean, if you got a loaf of bread, what do we call the first slice of that loaf of bread? What do we call it? The heel. Yeah. What a negative name. I've never seen a loaf of bread yet. Didn't have two beginnings. Okay? <laughs> we drive down here into town and we come to, come to a, a crossroads there and there's this light up there. What do we call that light? 
stoplight. When it's really there to make traffic go, right? It's not there to make traffic stop. And if the electricity ever goes out and that thing stops working, we find out how quickly traffic can stop without that light. It's there. They're go lights is what they are. They're there for the express purpose of helping traffic go. Most of us, when we wake up in the morning, we wake up to the sound of what we call the alarm goes off when the house catches on fire. Alarm is a negative word. Why don't we call them opportunity clocks? Because if you stop and think about it, if you can hear it, that means you've got the opportunity to get up and go. If you can't hear it, that may mean you done got up and went. So, <laughs> it's an opportunity clock. If we're out here and we accidentally have a, a wreck... We call this truck to come and get us. What do we call that truck oftentimes? A wrecker. A wrecker. Well, what we need is a tow truck. We've already had the wreck, right? We just naturally say things in a negative sense. And we, we need to change that attitude because when we fail, what do we tend to say to ourselves when we fail? I can't do this. You know how many years I told myself that I could not excel academically? How many years I told myself that I've got to work really, really hard just to be a C student? And as long as I told myself that, that's exactly how I performed most of the time. But when my mindset changed and I began to say, hey, I can not only excel in my academics, I can reach the top. And then I began to perform that way. It's true in every area of our life. Change your attitude. I love the story of, of um, Babe Ruth when he played for the Yankees. And the Yankees were in the pennant race to see who was going to go to the World Series. They were in the last game of the playoffs. And they were down. This is just like a movie. They were down by two runs. They had two men on. And it was the bottom of the ninth. And Babe Ruth was up to bat. But here's the unique thing about this particular game. Babe Ruth had not touched the ball all day long. Struck out every time. Had not even foul tipped. This was his fourth at bat. He was up there. The pitch comes down. He does his unique left-handed swing that he does where he corkscrews his body. He missed it. They throw the ball back. The pitcher winds up. He pitches that ball. Babe Ruth swings, and he misses it. By this time, the fans are already starting to walk out of the stadium. Babe Ruth steps up for that third pitch. He comes down. He swings. He connects. The ball soars over the fence. They win that game. They eventually go on to win the World Series. They were interviewing Babe Ruth after that game, and they said, Babe, what was going through your mind? The game was on the line. A possible championship was on the line. You had not touched the ball all day. You had two strikes on you. People were walking out. What was going through your head when you stepped into that box for that third pitch? And Babe Ruth said, same thing that's always going through my head when I'm in that batter's box. I was thinking about hitting a home run. Isn't that great? 
It didn't matter how many times he had struck out, how many times he had failed, how many times he had fallen flat on his face. When he stepped into that batter box, he wasn't thinking about all of that stuff. All he was thinking about was hitting a home run. Listen, no matter how many times we fail, no matter how many times we mess up, no matter how many times we fall flat on our face, when we get back up, let's just think about hitting a home run. Let's just think, let's focus on what the victory is rather than the past failures. Change our attitude. I like to call it an enthusiasm mindset that we have whenever we go into anything. Second thing, stop listening to failure messages. We listen to failure messages all the time, and most of them come from us. I can't do this. I'm not good enough for that. I'm not like that person. I can't perform like that. I'll never be that good. I can't lose that weight. I can't do devotions seven times a week. I can't do that ministry. We're always telling ourselves what we cannot do. Psychologist Shad Helmstetter says by the time a a child is 18 years old, they have heard over 148,000 times, no, or you can't do that. When we've heard over 148,000 times, no, or you can't do that, we tend to believe it. And we got to change those messages. The next time you catch yourself saying, I can't do that, change it and say, yes, I can. Just change those negative self-talks into positive self-talks. And then go do it. Well, what happens if I fail? You get back up and you try it again. Failure is no excuse for not trying. And failure is definitely not a determination that you can't do it. If that were true, you know how many things in this world would not be accomplished if people stopped the first time they failed? We wouldn't have cars. We wouldn't have cell phones. We probably wouldn't have electricity. We wouldn't have cameras. We probably wouldn't have instruments. This world would be a very different place if people stopped just because they failed. Keep going on. And then the third thing, after every failure, ask yourself this question. What can I learn from this? Because in reality, failure is just an opportunity to begin again more intelligently. Because you've already figured out what doesn't work. Right? Matter of fact, most successful people don't even use the word failure. They call them learning experiences. You've learned what doesn't work. You're closer to success because you found out what does not work. Several years ago, my wife and I were coming back out of Roanoke, Virginia. That's where my mother-in-law lives. And I saw this big billboard on the side of the interstate. And it had a picture of this big bird. I don't know if it was a crane or or what it was, but it was this huge bird. And this bird had a frog in its mouth. And the only thing you could really see of the frog were his legs that were just kind of dangling out of his mouth and his arms and hands, except his arms and hands weren't dangling. There was this lump in the bird's throat, which was obviously the frog, on his way down. And there was a death grip by that frog just below the lump. And the words across the top of that billboard said, Never give up. 
That's a powerful billboard right there. <laughs> Never give up. No matter how bad it looks, no matter how bad it's gotten, no matter how many brick walls you've hit, no matter, how, no matter how many times you've fallen flat on your face, never give up. I don't care if it looks like it is never going to get any better, that it's just this dark hole that you're never going to get out of. Keep moving forward. Never give up. You realize Thomas Edison, one of the greatest inventors ever, was one time inventing something and he had failed over a thousand times. And somebody asked him, what does it feel like being such a great inventor and failing over a thousand times? And Thomas Edison says, I haven't failed. I've just found over a thousand ways it's not going to work. Right? I'm closer to success now than I ever was. Albert Einstein, who we would consider to be one of the greatest minds ever, I mean, when we think of intelligence, Albert Einstein's face kind of just appears in our mind, doesn't it? You realize that Albert Einstein was several years old before he could even speak. And he failed his first college entrance exam. Never give up. No matter how bad it looks, never give up. Why? According to Philippians chapter 1 verse 6, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Don't give up on God because he's not going to give up on you. You may feel like giving up on yourself, but don't give up on God because He's never going to give up on you. You may feel like it's never going to work out. It's never going to get any better. These financial problems are never going to go away. I'm never going to be able to deal with this relationship. I'm never going to get any better at my job. I'm never going to get any better in my spiritual walk. You may feel like nothing is ever going to get better, but don't give up because God is not giving up on you. He will continue to work on you and continue to work in you. No more falling flat on our face. No more we're hitting our head up against the brick wall. We will be living in the perfection of glory at that moment and we don't have to worry about this anymore. But until then, let us be confident of this, that He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus.